Okay, so we're going we're gonna to dig in. If you want to join in, some of you guys like to get where we're going in the Bible soon. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 18. You can go ahead and turn there. But as we, before we do, I want to direct your, uh, your thinking attention to a, um, a study that uh, Harvard actually uh, is currently doing right now in seeking to measure what makes a happy life. What brings people happiness? And the study is actually what is believed to be the longest running study on human happiness that has ever been conducted. And it's, I say it's believed to be because we, you know, we understand modern era history and we don't know what was going on 3,000 years ago. Maybe the ancient Sumerians did a 500 year study on happiness. We don't know, but we don't have the records. But Harvard has been doing a study and they started with um, some college freshmen and they followed these fresh, uh, sorry, college sophomores at Harvard, and they followed them through their entire lives, regularly checking in and like taking social science surveys with them and like figuring out what, what is it that makes a happy life. Some of these people are happy, some are not. What, what does the trick, right? And I say it's the longest running study that we know of on human happiness because they started with these individuals as sophomores at university, and the ones that are still alive right now are in their early hundreds like 101, 102 years old, some of these people from the original study, meaning that they followed these individuals all the way through their lives. And so I think if, if you were to just poll any of us and say, what, what makes a happy life? I think some of the things that would come to our mind would be um, probably like how, how much money you have would be probably a significant factor. Maybe how successful you are because we all desire to be successful, maybe like how important or powerful you are. Like these are the kind of things that we think make a happy life. But it's really cool when, um, when the world discovers spiritual truth. And here's what Harvard has discovered over their longest running study regarding human happiness that we, uh, that we believe has ever been conducted. You guys ready for the answer? What makes a happy life? You guys ready? The answer is Deep and meaningful relationships. Thank you, Harvard. Right? Now, it was really cool. I, lo- I love when the world stumbles on truth that God has been seeking to tell people for eons and for ages. It is deep and meaningful relationships that make a happy life. Relationships. Last week we talked about the most meaningful and significant relationship that God invites each of us into, and that's a relationship with Him. So if we want to have a wealthy life, last week the number one ingredient was we need to have a deep and meaningful relationship with our Creator and Savior. That was last week. Uh, this week, the second ingredient that we're going to talk about in a wealthy life is that, um, that we need to have deep and meaningful relationships with people. Harvard says you need it. And so does, so does God himself, okay? We need people. And if we don't have deep and meaningful relationships with people, uh, we're missing a key ingredient to actually what makes a wealthy and meaningful life. All right, John chapter 18. We're going to dig into a story here that I think illustrates all the points that we want to make, and it does it better than I think we would have come up with on our own. John chapter 18, verse 1. The context here is that Jesus is moving towards the cross, the, the fulfillment, the culmination of why he came to lay his life down. Again, all the things we talked about last week. And his moments with his disciples and his followers are getting fewer and fewer and fewer as the clock is ticking. Jesus has just been at the Last Supper with his disciples, and now he's moved into the garden, and then obviously the cross is coming very, 
quickly. John chapter 18, verse number 1. Let's dig into this story. Here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples, what's going on here? Well, for at least two, maybe three years, what Jesus has been doing with his disciples is he's been forming a community. He's been seeking to cultivate and to band these men into friends, into buddies, into a team. And it seems that everywhere Jesus goes, one of the things that results from him being there, one of the ways that Jesus is fruitful, is everywhere Jesus goes, community forms, meaning people come together. These particular disciples of Jesus, I mean, they've been through a lot. Jesus is a master former of community. And so he has taken these men through storms, multiple storms, many of them on the waters. He has logged many miles with them and them together with each other. They as a team have faced incredible opposition and resistance. They have seen and experienced wonders together that have caused their jaw to drop. Through all of these things that Jesus is leading these disciples into, he is forming them into a relational team. That's what God loves to do. He loves to bring people into relationships with each other. Um, Genesis chapter 2.18, just to let you know that this isn't just in the gospel story where Jesus is like into cultivating relationships. Just sometimes it's good to go back to the beginning of the story to see how this story plays out and how this variation on a theme is all the way through the scriptures. But Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, regarding God being the one who seeks to lead people into relationships here in the beginning, then the Lord God said, this is back in the garden, he's speaking just to Adam, it's only Adam at this point. Then um, the Lord God said, quote, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a dot, 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 dot. It's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make someone for him to be in relationship with. And then God brings Eve onto the scene and he gives them a command and he says, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. I give you each other to have a relationship to enjoy, but it's not just going to be you two. You need to reproduce, multiply, have a whole bunch of kids, because when you have kids, what then we can have is more relationships, different kinds of relationships. And now it's not just like husband and wife, but now it's parent and child. And at some point, it will be like teammates and co-workers and, you know, people who are working on the election poll uh, thing together, right? All sorts of relationships. As we have people populating the world, God says, do it, have a whole bunch of people, because he wants to gift us and give us more relationships with people. But now here's a question for us. Um, Is God not enough for us? Is he not enough? You guys remember, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a book that came out, and the book was entitled, Just Give Me Jesus. The idea behind that is that God is enough, that Jesus is sufficient to fill us and to make us satisfied. Just give me Jesus. Yes, we talked about that last week, just that that is the most important relationship that we were made for. And do you know what happens when we fall into deep and meaningful relationship with God? Do you know what he does next? He leads us into deep and meaningful relationships with people. 
He's been doing that from the beginning. And that's what he loves and longs to do. And so we see this endeavor of God seeking to connect people to people, which started in Genesis chapter 2, 18, is continuing. And everywhere Jesus goes, he is forming people into deep relationships. Now the story continues. Verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Je- also knew the place, the garden, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Okay, so the interesting thing here is Judas, who is named among one of the 12 disciples, who's been through all the things that I talked about, the storms and the miles and the opposition and the wonders, Judas is not with the team at this point in verse 2. Judas missed half of the Last Supper, and he's missing now most of what's happening in the garden. Judas is and was not present with them. Which means that Judas is missing out on some really, really special moments with the team, with the group, with the friendship circle. I was a, I just finished my, my freshman year of college, moving into my sophomore year, but during that summer, had the opportunity to spend um, two months in Colorado with 42 other college athletes from all over the country. It was a magical summer. Uh, it was the first time that I feel like I had experienced deep and meaningful relationships. I'd had friends, I knew people for 18 years, but there was something different about this. And then like over the last day or two, because we all knew that our time was drawing to a close, there was something really special about those last two days because we were just like trying to wring out everything that we could because we knew we weren't going to be together. We didn't have social media back then and email kind of was just beginning to be a thing, but we knew this was it. And so we were just like drinking in as much of this as possible. There were tears and there was laughter and there was like late nights and we did all the things. And it was so rich because we knew it was coming to an end. And that is what is happening in the Last Supper and at the garden. They're drinking in the last remaining time and Judas is not there. He is absent. He is gone. He's vacated. He's missing out on so much. In verse 3, so Judas, who's missing out on this whole beautiful relational circle that Jesus has cultivated. So Judas, now having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas has found himself a new team. He's switched allegiances. He's taken his talents somewhere else. What's what's this new team that he has decided to join in with? Well, I just gave it a name this week. I'm calling the new team the 30 pieces of silver team. Woo! It's the kind of team you want to be on, doesn't it? Strikes fear in the heart of the opponent, like the Falcons or the... um, The Rams, we've got some Rams in the house, right? Judas has got a new team. It's the 30 pieces of silver team. And that's the amount of money that Jesus, uh, sorry, that Judas is selling Jesus out for. He's betraying him for a handful of change. And on the 30 pieces of silver team, it's very different than the team that Jesus has cultivated. 
On the 30 pieces of silver team, there's no camaraderie. There's no, no deep, meaningful connections. There's none of that. What it is, is simply for the sake of silver, it is a temporary alignment of humans coming together for a purpose, and then it's going to end. It's not going to continue. It's not going to last. It's just a temporary arrangement. Judas is moving ever so swiftly into deeper and deeper levels of poverty. Judas is choosing to be poor. What he's doing is he is forsaking people and relationships for things. We never do that. That's just Judas. None of us would ever be caught doing something as sinister as forsaking people for things. So I say Judas is moving towards poverty. Let me, make, let me clarify that a little bit. At this point, Judas is 30 pieces of silver richer than all of the other disciples. In terms of earthly wealth and quantified material possessions, he is on the increase. The IRS is looking at Judas in a different way now because his pockets are fuller. He's going to have to pay some more taxes now because his income has gone up. He's doing better socioeconomically. But we're not talking about socioeconomics in this series, are we? No. He's moving to get richer. But in his person and in his experience with life, Judas is getting poorer. He is moving in the opposite direction from what we are defining as a wealthy life. And we also, we also can move towards poverty by choosing things and money and stuff at the expense of relationship. And when we do that, we are walking in the way of Judas. And then Judas, right, as the gospel story continues, we get to see Judas's trajectory played out. Judas will here pretty soon begin to feel a deep and significant regret over the decision that he has made. In his regret, he will seek to give back the money that he got for betraying Jesus. He, the people that gave him the money say, hey, this is on you. Do whatever you want with the money. That was your decision. And then Judas, in his sorrow, in his guilt, and in his shame, will actually then take his own life. That's a sad ending. Here's the moral of the story for us. We ought not get to the end of our lives and at that moment realize that we chose the wrong things. That's Judas's experience. So that's poverty. Now let's make the transition to wealth. What does it look like to be wealthy regarding human relationships? Verse 4. Then... Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who's them? Them is Judas and soldiers and the religious leaders who were coming to get him. Um, where am I? Sorry, verse 4. Yeah. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Okay. So the great contrast to Judas here is Jesus. Jesus, in the exact opposite fashion, actually left the glory and the majesty of heaven and came to earth. He gave up a whole bunch to come here. And what's he going to do when he comes here? Well, he's come here to make friends. 
He's done a good job. He's got a team of men around him and women who travel with him, and it is a beautiful thing. They're walking into wealth relationally with one another and with Jesus. Now, how is Jesus ultimately going to make friends that last? Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to do everything that we talked about last week. He's going to lay his life down. Greater love has no man than this, that he or she would lay their very lives down for their friends. Jesus left the majesty of heaven, came here, and he's going to lay everything down for the sake of cultivating and building a team of friends and family around him. He's going to lay his life down. Jesus then, knowing all that would happen to him, comes forward. Verse 5. They answered him. Jesus says, who, who are you looking for? They answer him, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we're looking for. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Or I am. For those of you that know that phrase. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus is who he is. Jesus is doing all the incredible things that he is doing. And I love the glimpse that John gives us into what's happening here. That Jesus being who he is and doing what he is doing, that the opposition cannot stand in front of him. They literally like fall back and they fall down. And what John does is he gives us a glimpse into, right, here's the reality of the situation. Jesus is the king over all things. These guys are coming at him. They say, hey, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus says, I am. And then they, whoo, they fall back, right? That's power. That's power. That's a glimpse into who Jesus is and what he could do. But he doesn't do that. What he does is after they get back up, he then chooses to go with them voluntarily. He could crush them right now. At the very utterance of I am he, they fall back, but Jesus chooses not to act on that right now. He instead submits himself and goes voluntarily with them. Jesus is going to go down so he can continue to cultivate his friendships and so they can stay together. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Take me, let them go. You want to rough somebody up tonight? Take me, let them go. You want to lay a hurting on somebody right now? I'm your guy. Take me. Let them go. You guys looking for trouble? You band of soldiers with all of your weapons? You looking for trouble? Take me. Let them go. Greater love has no man than this. Verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of whom you gave me, Father, I have lost not a one. Jesus is grabbing, grabbing a hold of these men. He's grabbing a hold of his disciples, and he is not letting them go. He will not let them go. 
Because Jesus knows what is ultimately and supremely valuable. Relationships. And he's going to grab on and you're not going to cling, uncling his fingers and his grip from his friends. And what Jesus will do is he will lose and he will lose again and he will lose again for you and for me. Because that's a good friend. That's what a good friend does. He is fully God, yes, and he's going to lay his life down as our sacrifice, but he's fully man, and he's choosing to show us what a full-on man looks like in regards to his friends. And he's going to keep losing and keep laying down and keep losing and keep laying down. He's not going to let us go. And consider the future trajectory of each of these men, Judas and Jesus. Judas chooses silver over people. Judas is going to use you for me. I'm going to lay you down to lift me up. That's Judas. For 30 pieces of silver, you're going down. So I get the silver. Judas's future is that he is going to be filled with sorrow and regret. He's going to be alone and he's going to die and period. That's it. End of story for Judas. Now Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus, his trajectory is he will very soon, thank you, book of Hebrews, Jesus will be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are ooing and eyeing and hipping and hollering. Woo! Jesus, yes, you're awesome. You are so beautiful. You are magnificent. I love you. Jesus is going to be surrounded by throngs of family and friends who love him like that. Worshippers and friends. Who's wealthy? Judas. He's got 30 pieces of silver more than Jesus does. But we're not talking who's richer. Who's wealthier? Judas or Jesus? We know the answer. It's clear. Which path do we want to take with our lives? Judas or Jesus? I think we know the answer. Thank you, Harvard, and thank you, God, for preaching the same message. We are invited into relationships, and that's what makes a wealthy life. Let me give us a picture here, right? Because sometimes I love in the Proverbs where, like, God's trying to show us a lesson, and sometimes, like, just to kind of, like, be funny, I think, but also prove a point, he'll, like, point to something in creation, like an ant, and he'll say, hey, you sluggard, I got a lesson for you. Consider the ant, right? Like, it's time to learn a lesson from the ant, right? So Proverbs is filled with lessons from the created world because God's the creator, and he's embedded all sorts of wisdom in his creation. We can learn some things from the created world that happen to align with things that he has already told us. But this is is one of my fig trees, right? This fig tree is new. It's probably about a month and a half old. This guy, when he grows up from the ground up, will probably get about this tall if I place him in a warm, sunny location. This tree is on the move to bigger and better things. But there's something about this fig tree that is fascinating that uh, that I'd like us to appreciate this morning and that we might consider the fig tree and follow in its ways, okay? Um, What this fig tree and every other plant in existence, but what this fig tree does is uh, it's able to photosynthesize, which means it takes sunlight in its leaves and it creates sugar, right? It's a good thing that we can't do that because we'd all be in bad shape. But plants, it, the plants take sunlight, make glucose, and then that's the, its fuel. 
And then here's what this plant does, right? So even like right now, it's probably photosynthesizing. This is happening as we speak. It's taking energy from light, and it's creating glucose, sugars, food for it, for its nourishment. Of all the 100% of the sugars that this plant is creating, here's what's going to happen. 50% of those sugars are going to go up, meaning this tree is destined to be a lot bigger, and it's going to get five to six feet tall. It's going to take some energy to create that height that it needs to create. So half of the energy is going to go towards branching and stretching and growing up and out. It's good. It's a good return on investment to spend its energy in that way. It can photosynthesize more, can take in more energy, create more sugars. It's a good process. The other 50% of the sugars are going to go down into the root system because it needs to like stretch its roots out and go deep in its rootedness in proportion to its height. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of plants that are just falling down all around you. And if you're in the forest, you don't want that. Okay, so we need a strong and healthy root system. 50% of the energy is going to go into the root system. But here's the crazy thing. Of the 50% of the energy that it creates, the food that it makes, it labors for, 60% of that 50% that goes below its ground, it's actually going to be gifted and given away. Meaning that, if you're not a math person, that 30% of all of the food and energy that this plant creates, 30% is going to be given away through its roots. So here's what happens, and this is the beautiful thing, that this fig- and it's actually happening right now. It, actually, if you come up here and look out, you can see these roots. You see these roots right here? It's, it's doing it. Um, the plant will secrete 30% of its sugar out of its roots, just giving it away, giving it away, laying itself down, serving, blessing giving it away. And all these sugars are coming out of its roots, and then what happens in the soil? Well, all these microbes say, "Woo! free sugar, let's go hang out here, okay? And so as these roots stretch out in the ground, all these microbes start populating around the roots because they're feasting and eating the sugars. They're saying, thank you, fig tree, thank you, thank you for the sugars. And these microbes are then reproducing and multiplying, and like life around the root mass of this tree begins to flourish with billions and trillions of microorganisms. Just because of the sheer generosity of the fig tree. And then here's the crazy thing. These microbes will then, in the soil, actually do things that the tree needs them to do. The microbes will take phosphates and make them soluble, meaning it will take phosphate out of the soil and make it usable to the plant where before it wasn't. It will take nitrogen and it will actually fix it in a usable form right at the root place where the roots in the soil meet. The microbes can do it, but the tree can't. So the tree creates a constellation of life and flourishing all around its roots by being generous and gifting and giving away 30% of everything that it works for. But the return is magnificent. Now, I don't know that the fig tree knows that, that's retur- that the return's coming. I think that God just wired the fig tree to be generous, to give out, and then it's like magically, like, wow, I just gave all this stuff out, and I get all these minerals that I couldn't get before. Wow, God, you're awesome. It's not selfishly just secreting so that it can get. It was designed to give. And after it gives, then it receives. 
Doesn't that sound like the fingerprint of our maker, who is also our savior? And when the tree, well, this tree is wise enough, it will never stop gifting 30% of all it produces to uh, the the microbes around it. It will continue to do that because that's what it was created to do. But if, if this tree stopped its generosity process, if it decided to say, hey, that 30% I'm giving away, I'm going to hold on to that. I'm actually going to start keeping that for myself because I think I could just like extend my roots deeper and I wouldn't have to give any of this stuff away. I'm just going to take care of me for a little bit. As soon as it does that, now the microbes, eh, they don't have any reason to be there. They don't want to be there. They're not benefiting at all and they're just going to die because they're not getting the food they need. And then what happens is the plant doesn't get nitrogen, it doesn't get phosphate, it doesn't get all the micronutrients that are inaccessible to it outside of the things that are living around it. The tree would miss out. The tree would be alive. It would probably be anemic. It would be poor. But the tree has the sense to not stop giving. To stop itself from saying, no, everything I get's for me and I just want to take, 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 take. The tree knows not to go the path of Judas. Consider the fig tree. Judas. So we talked about rich, we talked about poor regarding human relationships. We don't have time for this, but middle class is essentially what happens in the next several verses, right? Judas is just trying to get his own, take care of himself and choosing things over people. Jesus is laying everything down for the sake of people and finding a population of people around him who are his friends and family, very different. Middle class in this relational context would be Peter, who just in a moment here is going to take his sword and he's going to swing it and he's going to defend Jesus in a seemingly heroic act of friendship and camaraderie with Jesus. And then just a couple of minutes later, we would see this. uh, Peter's actually going to deny that he ever knew Jesus three times. Um, so, So the middle class are those of us who will fluctuate back and forth between just looking out for me and taking care of me and being like wildly generous and laying myself down and giving and gifting. And I just, but now I'm feeling like I just want to self-protect and take care of myself. And who's Jesus? I, I wasn't with him. Shut up. I never knew him. Stop saying that I was. And then he's over here doing something heroic and like walking on water with Jesus and something magnificent. He's just choosing to be with him. And over here he's just thinking about himself. Middle class is like bipolar. Just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Vacillating, depending on the moment. But the call that Jesus gives each of us is that we would follow him in generous living. That we would choose people over things. And that we would seek to give and to gift and to bless. I'm not just talking money here, but I'm talking time and energy and attention. I'm talking about your spiritual gift, which we ought not hoard for ourselves, but we ought to display for the sake of others. Like we were called and we were given so many things by God to exude to people around us that they need and that they long for. But when we live that kind of life, laying ourselves down, serving others with a generous posture to give so many of the things that God has given, at least 30%, thank you to the tree. When we do that, we also, like the roots of the tree, we create a constellation of life 
around us. And the constellation of life that gets created around us is relationships with real people who see us, who know us, who love us, who are blessed by us. Relationships cultivated over time. Just give me Jesus. Yes. And he wants to give you a whole bunch of people too. That's his call. That's his path. That's his design. That's his invitation. It's ingredient number two in what makes a wealthy life. Band, come on back up. We're going to sing. I guess the invitation now as we sing is to consider... Jesus and his path and his posture to consider the fig tree, to consider our lives and where we're at, and what we may need to take an assessment of regarding a posture change out of Judas and away from the destiny that is alone, minus people, minus wealth, minus relationships, and to follow Jesus into something totally different, totally new totally alive. God made us for relationship with himself, and he made us for relationship with people. And he has given us all that we need to cultivate a flourishing relational network all around us. He just says, follow me. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. God, last week we celebrate that you gave us yourself and you continue to give us and gift us your very presence. And Father, this week uh, we see that you have, in addition to giving us yourself, you also give us each other. Father, I pray that you would open our, our eyes and our minds and our hearts uh, to see the people in our lives the way you see them, the way you want us to see them, and that we would treat them the way you desire us to treat them, and that we would begin to posture ourselves towards them the way Jesus does us, the path of the servant, the generous one who's giving and pouring out, who's laying himself down to lift others up. Father, I pray that you would awaken that inside of us, and that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for that which is truly valuable, to be in relationship move us to that end. Father, even off of the pandemic, so many people disconnected and alienated and still trying to figure out what life looks like on the other side. I pray that this would be a, a jarring shake into a renewed vigor to pursue people, real people in real space, in real time, real connections. Just minister that to us and move that in us. Thanks for being so good. Thanks for being the highly relational one that invites us into more 